Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 3, Episode 5. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, we will be discussing the franchise M&A landscape for the first two quarters of 2021. I'll be engaging in a dialogue with Derek Ball and Tony Petrunin of our Unbridled team. Among other topics, we discuss QSR sales and profits, valuation trends, results from a recent lender survey, changes in real estate valuations and financing, and a forward-looking M&A outlook for the remainder of 2021. This podcast is also available as a webinar at Unbridled Capital's website. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk. Delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. This We're calling this Q2 2001 M&A Trends. For those of you who are geeks like me, that's a lot of numbers and, and acronyms in one sentence, but I uh, uh, hope you enjoy it. And Here's who we have on the call. Many of you will know Derek and Tony. They work at Unbridled and they've done, both of them done a great job over the last several years of helping grow our business. And they work primarily with me to, you know, bring in new clients and transactions and then work on the transactions that were that, that are before us and get them closed successfully. One of the things I always like to point out is that we continue to hold a 90 plus percent uh, you know, uh, success rate on the assignments we take. And that's not easy to do. Most of our competitors and others in the industry are probably at 30 or 40%, right? So it's a shocking statistic. It would be kind of like someone shooting 98% from the foul line. You know, no one's ever done that in basketball. So it's kind of like that. And and one of the main reasons where we, uh, we, we do that is these guys do a fantastic job. So they're going to have some good perspectives that we want to share with you here. And uh, hopefully you find it interesting. Make sure to raise your hand again. As we go through it, we're going to talk first about just kind of what the market conditions are, you know, we'll, we'll talk for like five minutes about this, right? And then we'll go into kind of, you know, most of our business is on QSR. We'll talk about casual dining and fast casual. And then anecdotally, I'll talk a little bit about franchising outside of restaurants, which is continuously a part of what we do, just a, you know, a smaller part of what we do. It's no surprise that QSR has been kind of dominating the M&A market here and the sales and profit environment over the last six or nine months during the COVID pandemic. And so, a lot of our perspectives are going to be uh, from from that arena. Uh, we'll talk about kind of where valuations are right now, and it's really a rocky time, like Tony alluded to earlier. Things are, are fluid and changing by the moment. And then we have this really cool thing that's a lender survey that I did back in October, and we're going to compare the results from this week, 15 lenders or so, to what they said back in last May or last June. And so it's going to be a fascinating discussion and you'll be able to see some of the changes, not just from what we're telling you, but what collectively the lenders are showing us by their actions and by their results to the survey. I think it'll be enlightening for you. So we'll do that. That'll probably take probably 20 or 30 minutes. And then we'll finish up with a quick real estate financing and sale lease back update. Uh, good news there as well. Uh, and then, and then we'll uh, kind of finish up with some predictions maybe for what'll happen for the rest of the year. Does that sound cool with you guys? Sounds good. All right. Rock and roll. All right. So I kind of start with the first slide and I just kind of, you know, throw that out here to you guys. Like I'll start with the first point and then you guys kind of talk anecdotally, you know, however you, you see fit. It's, um, you know, our deal flow. So, I mean, historically speaking, I think you guys would agree 
if I look at the last several years and then, of course, over the course of the last 15 or 20 years, I mean, we're busy. We're busier than we have been in, in times past. And I think if you listen to this podcast or this webinar, you know, a lot, you're going to know that I predicted back in the late summer that we would see a return to M&A. And a lot of people didn't think it would happen this fast. I did. And and I thought it would. And it has come to fruition. And what I said before, maybe last fall, was that we had more demand than supply. Now, I think because of several various factors, including taxes and historically awesome comps in the QSR sector, we have kind of a nice balance of supply and demand. What do you guys think about, you know, about some of those comments? You guys want to share any thoughts? Yeah, I think on, on the demand side, I think we maybe said this in our last webinar, I think at least three times a week, I'm getting a cold email, a cold call, some kind of cold intro from a private equity group, family office, wanting to understand how to acquire into a star, have some questions about intricacies, and want to seal the deal flow. So from that side, I don't see any change whatsoever. On the supply side, I've definitely seen a pretty large uptick uh, given some of the tax policy uh, considerations that you just mentioned, Rick. It almost feels like, gosh, since I've been here, this is by far the busiest time I've ever seen at Unbridled. And uh, I think it's a testament to a lot of people wanting to come around the bend in fiscal year 2021 here and having their deal behind them. They're considering maybe a sale in year three, four, five from now, and they're looking at this window as a unique time to exit. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Eric? Also got the, you've got the 2020 sellers that weren't able to sell last year. Just didn't think it was the right time. It was a little too rocky. So you've got people that wanted to sell this year. You've got people that wanted to sell last year. You've got people that, Maybe thought, like Tony said, they'd sell in the next few years, which, you know, we can talk about. But then you've got people that maybe had no desire to sell for the next 10 years. And now they're just, you know, at that point in their life and they see things being so rocky in the market and with government, just general things. And they're tired and they're they're having to deal with staff and their stores and they're just tired. And they say, you know, what, we're going to let the younger generation take over and and be done. So you've got a lot of factors kind of pushing into one short period of time, I think 2021. And we'll see. I mean, at the end of the day, we don't know what the future holds. We'll see what 22 and 23 bring. But I think you've got a lot of, you've essentially almost got three years of people that are wanting to sell, maybe pushed into to a very, you know, short 12 to 18 month time frame. And that's why you're seeing so many deals out there. Yeah, I think it's a really good point, right? So if you think about 2020, a lot of people, you know, paused their M&A plans. Now, for us, we were able to, unbridled, we were able to jam through a record year, basically, almost a record year for us. That's not normal. I don't think anyone else was able to do that. A lot of people paused their, you know, M&A decisions uh, until the back, like, third of the year or back fourth of the year until things started to somewhat look like we could predict what was going to happen. So you're right. I think we have the 2020 circumstance where we had an underpenetration generally in the market of M&A. We have 2021, which just absent any other year in any other circumstance would have been normal like. And so, so you have like the normal amount of people in any given year that would have sold in 2021 or thought about selling. And then you have like this kind of extra layer of people who might be pulling forward because of performance and because of potential tax considerations. And so the tax piece we've talked about several times over the last few months, and no one really knows what's going to happen or when it's going to happen. I think it's pretty likely we're going to see capital gains taxes increase. Now, how much they're going to increase, I don't know. Biden's publicly said that he wants to support 42.3% capital gains tax. Right now, it's at 23.8%, not quite a doubling. 
depending on whether you have real estate or not in your portfolio, you know, typically, I mean, this is a wide barometer. Don't take my word for this, but typically 60 to 80% of a transaction when you sell a company is going to be on, is going to, you're going to pay 68, 60 to 80% of it's going to be capital gains tax, you know, maybe, maybe even more um, as opposed to, to ordinary income tax. So when you sell a company, the impact of capital gains taxes is very important to you. And that's an important point to pause on because some of our smaller operators and friends here, you know, don't maybe haven't, haven't thought of it that way. I've, I've run into that several times. But when you look at selling a $20 million, if you have a $20 million gain in the sale of your company and you're looking at taxes going from, you know, your blended tax rate on the federal level going from 26 to who knows, 36%, that extra 10% is $2 million. And so and who knows when that would be implemented, whether it's January 1st of 2022 or not, who knows, uh, whether if it gets passed, what the number is. I mean, there's, you know, Joe Manchin and some other senators are trying to make the changes more moderate. Maybe if it's not such a big cliff and we get a change to capital gains tax from 23.8 to like 28%, it'll be more of a muted impact. And we won't see as much of a deceleration of M&A activity on the selling side. I mean, for buyers, you still have really low interest rates. You have great P&Ls. So for buyers, I think you're in good shape. But I, but 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 from the seller standpoint, we continue to hear people saying, "Well, you know, there's a risk out there that that if I was going to sell it, you know, five years from now, I'm going to spend the next couple of years having to work to pay the difference in taxes potentially if the tax uh, rates increase." Um, so, what would you guys say about supply and demand? Let's talk about that for just a few minutes. I mean, yeah. I, I think. Um... And I don't know if this is the bullet point it comes into. I mean, like like we just said, Tony and I just said, there's a lot of supply out there. The more the most supply we've seen, yet we're still getting a ton of offers on every single deal. So exactly. there's, there's still a massive amount of demand um, for these deals, even though the, the deal flow is picking up. Fat, I mean, you know. Rick's been in here 20 years. My guess is you've never seen any anything like this in, in 20 years in terms of supply. And we're still seeing buyers, you know, salivating for almost every deal we put out there. And it, it it's um, and this isn't really a point on here, but something that that is important to know, and I tell a lot of people this is, you know, there's there there are a few trains of thought, and I, I don't know who's right. Um, we're we're selling businesses and 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 just getting deals done. But, you know, you've got the train of thought of buyers that are massively bullish on the near term and long term for QSR, which is really what we primarily focus on at Unbridled um, for the most part. And then you've got buyers that, you know, are more more cautious, reserved, and and want to put a normal multiple on a normalized EBITDA number or 2019 plus, you know, 5% sales left or something like that. Um, and I don't, I don't know who's right, who's wrong, but you got a lot of smart people out there that, that are, that are thinking both ways. So I can't sit here and say that, that, that one school of thought is, is correct. You've got a lot of different smart people. Um, and that's why you're seeing just a massive amount of demand. Um, cause we're still getting, you know, offers that aren't winning from the cautious people. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know. It's whatever makes sense for you individually. Sorry, how you can get a finance too. Obviously, financing is an interesting piece of this. For those of you who are listening who are lenders, you're kind of going like this: like, how do I get my hands around how to underwrite the risk associated with a business that's up thirty or forty percent in EBITDA over last year? And so, that's a material consideration. By the way, Tony, I want to hear what you have to say. I got a text from someone's funny. He said he said his dot com loser was CMGI uh, back in the '90s. For those of you who are in your mid forties or older, like me. 
you know, you have all those like buried bodies of all those stocks that we invested in and lost, you know, lost all of our money in them, man. So you lost money in CMGI. I lost it in phone.com. If you have any other stocks that you lost it in, send along. It's just kind of kind of humorous. Any comments you got, Tony, to yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit about the supply side and the pinch and some of these sellers who are looking to exit, but I feel like on the demand side, really the tax implications have very little bearing. Um, I hate to say that because it's, it's a pretty big statement, but I think demand is seeing through this. And to Derek's point, we have a lot of people who are looking to acquire long term. And so Derek's right. You have the two school of thoughts. You kind of have the people who are more conservative and want to look at normalized EBITDA pre post COVID, take a midpoint be a little bit more, I'm using air force, more rational in that sense. Yeah. But you also have these people who are saying, you know, I'm going to hold this asset for 10, 12, 15 years. And, you know, I've got PPP money sitting here. My other QSR businesses have generated a ton of cash. I've got a lot of money sitting on the balance sheet. And if I need to inject another 10, 15, 20% into a capital structure to finance a deal that I'm sure I'll win, some people are willing to just go ahead and do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's well said. Well said. I think that's right. I think that's right. And so we might say that the supply and demand are pretty much in equilibrium. Uh, you know, I, I would say, you know, it feels like it, it feels that way to me. Thanks for your all's comments. I'll flip to the next slide and just chat a little bit about outlook. Right. And for sales and profits. And, uh, you know, for those of you who operate businesses, you know, you you know what your restaurants or your your franchises are doing. But uh you know, I, I just, what do you guys think? I mean, look at these points, grab a couple of them and again, share some, share some thoughts. I mean, QSR is still winning big, right? You know, with the industry rebound, we're starting to see our casual dining friends and our fast casual friends really start coming back, which I'm really happy to see as we get past this mask mandate. I was just looking at the CDC COVID tracker yesterday and the amount of COVID cases is, is like dropping like a lead weight. I mean, they're at the, like yesterday they were below I, I was just looking at a graph, eyeballing a graph, but it looked like it was lower than it's been since like March of last year. So, you know, around where I live here in the Panhandle, Florida, man, I mean, there, there ain't no masks and the, and the restaurants, indoor restaurants are 100% full. Um, but QSR is still winning, although decelerating a little bit. What do you guys see in sales and profits? I mean, we're still there. Slides says QSR is still doing really well, uh, I think. And I don't know if this was on the last slide or or on this one, um, you know, we've heard from some people, sales have started slipping a little bit. I think it depends on the brand. It depends on how well you did last year during COVID. If you just started off last March and April, plus 20, you're probably looking a little worse now compared. If you started off, you know, negative 10, negative 20, you might be looking really good right now. And there are some brands that that are, that are in both situations. A um, little bit depends on where you are too. Um, but, you know, a lot of the country's been open for a while. You know, maybe you've got downtown L.A. or New York City that hasn't been. But really, a lot of the country's been open for several months. Obviously, people have been getting those stimulus checks and, and doing doing pretty well that way. But what we're hearing and we don't work in casual as much. We really we really mostly focus on, on QSR generally. But um, I've talked to some lenders that said a lot of their casual dining clients are back up to 100% of pre-COVID levels or higher. Yeah. And if you really think about it, if you think of all the mom and pops that have closed, you know, long-term, I hate saying this, but it might not be the KFCs or Taco Bells or Burger King that benefit from that, but it might be the Applebee's or Chili's. You know, if you want to go to a local dine-in place, you're maybe just going to find a new dine-in place. And if that happens to be the, the big guys like Applebee's, Chili's, Denny's, IHOP's, 
you know, maybe that's where you end up going. Yeah. Um, I, I would say this. I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit more. I mean, who knows? You know, I'm just kind of postulating here for a moment, but let's say some of the QSR MA activity is pulled into 2021 because the PLs look so strong and the threat of higher taxes for 2022 and beyond are there. So it stimulates demand. A lot of the casual dining brands are starting to rebound and have been for the last month or two. Oh, by the way, Sometime uh, Q1, Q2 of next year, the casual dining brands may be looking pretty darn strong and may not have as lot as this, the same amount of supply in the marketplace from the QSR deals that have been pulled forward into this year. And maybe just maybe if the tax increases that are that are getting negotiated don't end up as eye popping as we you know as we we would think they would be, then then maybe we could see a really interesting M&A market emerging in the casual dining and fast casual space and also in the fitness space, maybe in Q1 and Q2 of next year. So I don't know if you guys have thought about that, but you know, that's just Rick's wild idea that that might be something you could see. What else you see on here, Tony, that you like uh, or want to comment about, you know? I was going to take and maybe pull on the thread of what Derek alluded to is about the sales lapping and some of the complexity there. Um, I've got about a third of our clients right now who I think would be even beating last year's pops right now if it weren't for having reduced hours. Yes, yeah, there's yeah. some that are right there. I mean, slightly below, slightly positive, but they've had to go to summer hours uh, or, or just hours and open later and close sooner, et cetera, to basically compensate for a labor shortage. So it's a, it's crazy. You've got more patrons than you could ever serve but you're having an issue fulfilling that demand with labor, which I think that's what happens when uh, candidly the government puts their finger on the scale a little bit here, but it's created a unique dynamic, especially as you start thinking about lapping and which brands are, 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 are able to meet or exceed that lap from COVID. Um, and to Derek's point, I'm not seeing it uh, across the board by brand. It's kind of hit or miss in certain pockets. I think in a few more months, we will have a better read on it. I'm sure a lot of the lenders here are nodding their heads too, because I think they're in this awkward phase too, where they're looking at weekly comps probably from all their clients and trying to get a feel for which brands are going to see through this, capture customers, retain customers, or lose customers. And what the new normal looks like, I think will be pretty clear come October or November or December. Before we get off this phone, we'll make sure we all kind of throw in our hat in the ring on what we think will happen, because several of the questions, Tony, Derek, that have come up along the last uh, couple of days on emails to me have been like, what do we think is going to happen to everything once, you know, the, the stimulus spending is over, you know, what's going to happen to sales that they've have everyone had, have these brands picked up like long-term customers, or is this largely a short-term trend? Is there somewhere in the middle that we should, we should be thinking about. Um, and, and, and let's hold that idea, but let's, let's put that in the back of our head and, and, and talk about it in a few slides. I mean, I do think, you know, and, and the only thing we didn't really talk about here, one is, you know, it's it's labor inflation is here, right? You know, with competing with the government for, for employment, and it's probably here to stay. It's a good article in the Franchise Times, I think, or the Restaurant Monitor in, uh, in May, this last article that talked about that, that it's probably here to stay on the low end. You know, and it'll probably move its way up into middle management, too, if you're like a restaurant manager or an area coach. You know, and, and, and I note that it's really fascinating if we just take a simple chicken brand and you look at some of its stores across the country, franchisees who were helping, like you, you may see like a seven or eight or 10 point shift in same store sales or comps over last year based on different geographies. So it's almost like these little microcosms that didn't exist so much beforehand. Um, 
So that's something to note too. What's happening in Idaho may be way different than what's happening in in New Jersey. You know. Okay, valuations. What do you think, boys? Overall, valuations are up. They have been for for months. You know, and you said everybody give your prediction. I mean, heck, at, at this time last year, maybe maybe last April or March. Everyone thought it would be 30% discounts in QSR for the next year. Obviously, that changed drastically. Um, really, the most I think most people's surprise, um, to my surprise personally, um, you know, we thought valuations would would drop for sure last March and April before we started seeing the big upticks in most brands. Multiples are still very high. Some brands you maybe see multiples slip a little bit if even as up drastically. Uh, maybe you just see people hedging it out a little bit, but not in the most of the deals we're doing. You're not seeing that very much. You're seeing it very slightly. Like I said, you've got two trains of thought. You got really, really bullish buyers that are willing to still pay big multiples on current EBITDA. You've got more conservative buyers. And I, I can't say one school of thought or the other is is correct. How does someone come up with a price? How does someone come up with a price on today's assets? I mean, like, you know, you have two major factors, right? You've got EBITDA. I mean, like, there's way more than two factors, but let's just boil it down to the two most important ones, really. EBITDA, whatever you think the EBITDA is, and EBITDA multiple. So, like, one multiplied by the other typically comes up with a price. I mean, we got to talk about GNA. We got to talk about remodeling. We got to talk about development obligations. We got to talk about real estate. There's all kinds of other things, but essentially, You've got EBITDA multiple and EBITDA, and that comes up with the price. Well, I mean, you guys are in the marketplace talking with our, you know, with buyers as we have these assignments. I mean, how, I mean get, give a landscape to those listening and watching. What, I mean, how are people thinking about that? I think the, this is just me speaking in my personal experience. I think the brands that performed extremely well, that have a lot of M&A activity that are kind of the most coveted. I think we all could probably think of the top, call it quartile of brands. You're seeing that 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 second camp that Derek was alluding to, where people are willing to look out in the future and pay beyond what they would have pre-COVID, regardless of what EBITDA or EBITDA or multiples are doing, they're willing to sharpen their pencils even further. You have the more conservative folks that I think are, I would say, are looking at normalized EBITDA pre-COVID, and I think they're probably paying multiples that are similar. I'm sorry, they're paying values that are similar to what they were pre-COVID. It's just that EBITDA has expanded, but maybe the multiple they're applying is is softened a bit to compensate for it. And they're still winning deals too, right? So I think it's, you kind of have these two worlds colliding, but also who wins the day depends on what kind of deal it is, which brand, what geography, right? So the most coveted assets are going to be attracting that second group of buyer that's willing to sharpen their pencils um, and good assets that perform well with a really good narrative with good ownership changes, like you see with some of the Inspire brands, et cetera. Those things are, I think, continue to fetch really strong multiples. And you've got other brands that maybe a little bit more challenged or maybe a little bit more picked over, but they're still transacting at valuations near pre-COVID or even slightly better in some cases. So you're saying that the RCN deals that are trading on trailing 12-month, current trailing 12-month EBITDA at multiples that were the same multiples in 2019 for certain transactions, others you're not. Others are seeing maybe multiple gets dropped a little bit to comp- to compensate for the higher EBITDA or multiple stays the same and the EBITDA multiple gets pro forma down a little bit to be an average of the last two years or something like this. Um, but you're seeing it all over the board. But the good deals that have a lot of demand, and I, I guess I'm asking, but I'm also telling, right, are seeing mm-hmm. the, the EBITDA multiple hold the line 
and and even the EBITDA itself getting getting priced on current on getting getting priced on current trailing twelve month financials. Any comments right. on that? You guys agree with that? And I, but I would say even that pool of coveted deals pre COVID to now has expanded. Yeah. Right. You've got a lot of sellers to Derek's point and your point earlier who've come out of the woods. Whether they're one sell in 2020 or now they've got the nudge from the tax man, they're saying, okay, now's the time to take my quality assets to market. And so in some of those, you get a great improvement in multiple and you've got a nice COVID pop and somebody's willing to pay for it. It's it's a real unique window to be exiting. Mm. You agree with that? Any any other comments? Yeah, it's absolutely right. What about the other brands? I mean, Derek, you particularly have had a couple of assignments with brands, kind of tier two and tier three brands. And so I want to address that a little bit because I think there's a little bit of a disparity here, right? Like you're on the playground, um, you know, you're picking up a pickup game of basketball and you look at the little short kid and you say, you know, that little short kid, no one wants to recruit on their team, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, so I would, I'd say that the top tier one brands are getting the best treatment. Um, just across the board, like what Tony just said. It, so we're working, I believe, in nine brands right now. You know, most of them are, are the top national tier one brands working in a couple, I would, I would say, just smaller regional or tier two brands. Um, and, and buyers are not viewing the EBITDA increases the same way. They aren't. They are paying what I would consider a slight premium, but they're not paying, you know, current EBITDA times five, five and a half. So the multiples, if you're in a in a tier two or regional brand, I believe the multiples, if you've seen big EBITDA increases, um, you're seeing the multiples drop quite a bit. The net valuation is still higher than it would have been pre-COVID, but you're not getting, you know, the same multiple times 100% increase in EBITDA. You know, you might be getting a, a four times number now that looks like six on historicals or, or something seven like that. or eight yeah or, right you know or you might but you're not going to get that 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 five or six times on current so I, I don't know if that's just the deals we're seeing but I, I, we've seen it and heard it just through the market through the grapevine on on several deals that we've, we've heard about in the market including the ones that we're on is the buyers just aren't aren't looking to pay the same multiple premium for current EBITDA once you get out of those those national brands. Hmm. 30 seconds. What's going to happen if sales comps go negative? Do you think they'll go negative? What do you think? When will they go negative? What, you know, any kind of commentary on that? You know, and I, I know it's a, such a broad question that can't be easily answered, but anyone have any thoughts? I think a lot of buyers are already predicting sales go negative. I think it depends on specific buyers and how they view it. Like I said, everybody has a different opinion. Um, and mine definitely is not the, the end all be all. I think a lot of buyers are already expecting negative comps, though. So they're they're putting in offers, potentially hedging that already. Whether they disclose that to the seller and exactly show how they get the calculation there, I think most buyers are expecting some form of negative comps. You know, to where you're still going to be hopefully sizably above 2019 numbers, but maybe a little bit below year in 2020. So I think it'll it'll shift valuations down slightly depending on how big. The comps are negative. I mean, if we're up 30 in 2020 and down five in 2021, I don't think buyers will, will look too hard at it. If you're up 30 in 2020 and down 25 in 2021, well, that that's probably a bigger issue, and buyers will start looking back at what was 2019. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it depends on the size of the negative comp. 
I'm kind of bullish. I mean, I don't know if you guys, you know, maybe I'm always bullish in the eyes of people who are watching and listening, but I'm a, I'm kind of bullish actually. You know, I I expect we'll have a deceleration. It's already occurring, and you know, it's uh, and I'm always too of the opinion that if it's if this is you know, we're there. Franchisees are going to keep 100% of their sales and profits during COVID, and this is they're going, it's going to go back to 2019 levels. I'm always somewhere in between. I think there is some new that that um, you know some of the things, some of the technological changes, some of the delivery changes, some of the way that the platforms have changed, the products that have that you know, in the in the way in which the drive-through has sped up and been more you know emphasized. I think those are lasting things that will enable some QSR chains, especially the ones that are taking market share generally, to, uh, to to settle at a higher place than where they were prior to the pandemic. I think that's natural. I mean, that happens all the, all the time in our competitive free market enterprise, right? Someone takes what someone else has and they grow at the expense of somebody else. So I think some of that is definitely going to happen. I mean, how much of it, you know, I, I don't know, but I remain more bullish. Uh, you know, I, I thought, you know, probably three months ago that we we're going to be looking at like a really big cliff you know, once we hit like May right now, um, you know, over last year, once we, you know, once we kind of started to hit this time frame in 2020, where sales and profits started to really peak at QSR particularly. And, you know, because of the government stimulus and maybe also because of an increased demand in general and a difference in the way we eat now, um, you know, we're not seeing it quite, quite as much. I mean, I expect we will see some deceleration and sales comps may go negative over last year when we start trailing into Q3. Who knows and how, how much, who knows, but, but it's largely, I think, a pretty positive story. I mean, I don't know how you guys feel about it. I go walking down the street and if I ignore some of the news networks, you know, uh, I kind of feel I kind of look around and I feel like things are moving, moving. Okay. And then I see the labor situation in the back of these restaurants and I, and I changed my mind a little bit, but just a commentary, I'm rambling. Um, so someone asked, speaking of the labor stuff, a couple uh, yeah, questions. questions. If you can see them, answer them. I, I can't see them without stopping share. So yeah, go ahead. Uh, there's two of them here. Um, I won't say the, the full name, but Mitchell, if you want to talk at another time about multiples of TTM, EBITDA, please do, because that's an hour of discussion. Um, <laughs> it's a varies widely. Um, so feel free to reach out to us directly after the after the webinar. Um, the other one, what do you think about Chipotle and McDonald's announcements about starting wages will do to the franchising margins in the near term? I'm, I might be out of the loop on exactly. I'm assuming that just they announced that they're going to have starting wages much higher than before is my guess. What the question is, just must not have read that. Um, I, I, in the very, very near term in the next month, I'm not sure it matters unless they're paying 20, 25 bucks an hour. I think you'll still see people sitting at their butts at home, um, getting paid by the government. Fortunately, we've got 19 states, I think, that are getting rid of the, the national benefits sometime in June. Obviously, you know, hopefully more to come. And then the rest of it's September 6th if it doesn't get extended. Um, I see. So 15 bucks and 15 bucks in all their company stores. Um, that might get yep. people to come back to work, but they're making the same amount or more sitting at home. So, you know, have a nice free summer of, of having fun and not working if you don't have to. That's the mentality, I guess, of a lot of people. So in the next month, I don't know if it impacts wages. I think it will impact wages once people start coming back, obviously. Um, and maybe the restaurant industry will just have to, to immediately go to, um, 15 bucks an hour before. I mean, it's not coming down. That's my perspective. Since when have you ever seen a government policy or a government tax where they all of a sudden take it and then they reduce it? 
I mean, once you have this kind of a salary threshold in place and people start getting comfortable with it, you know, prices are going to raise, employees aren't going to go back to work. And now they have more and more options at $15 an hour and they're going to just take them. I think it's going to take the whole industry upward. It's interesting. Like I'm sitting yesterday at the grocery store down here. It's Rouse's. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're out of Louisiana, but my daughter is almost 17. We're going through the checkout line and the, and the checkout lady's like, hey, do you want to come work for us? It's $15 an hour. And if you stay till se September 1st, we'll give you $1,500 bonus, even if you're only working part time. I'm wow. like, and she's 16 and never wow. really had a job before. Like it's, uh, you know, and I know down here at the beach, it's different. But um, I mean, that's the sentiment. I think once we we come across that threshold, it's going to be difficult to yeah, to move yeah. back down. So you got to have a brand that's going to have the pricing power. Like if you, that's the key. you know, that's the key, isn't it? Like if you're like a national brand that doesn't have a national competitor and you like anything else and you can price a little bit more for your, for your product, I mean, go, then, then that's what you're going to have to do to keep your margins up. And, and I suspect that the good brands are going to show, even in the midst of big labor increases, they're going to show profit increases too. And that's the wonderful thing about it is if you can run your darn business the right way, manage the drive-through how many times have you guys been through a drive-through in the last month where you sat for 10 minutes waiting to get served if you can manage your business and operate it well and you have a brand that's doing great i mean i think the market will show us in a year or so that that your ebitda is going to be doing just fine unless we have a nuclear missile hit some tall building somewhere you know yeah I think I think Rick, that's that's the key. You need to be in a in a brand that has pricing power. You can be elastic and take price when everyone else can. If you're doing national seven ninety nine pizza and it's got that's how it's got to be coast to coast, then that's a different story. But um, it, it's it's less going to be uh, something that we could probably guide franchisees on, and more something that they're going to have to do like a grassroots movement and get on their advisory council boards and lobby the heck out of their franchisors to make something happen. Yeah. Well said, you know, and uh, let's, let's, you know, we've got like 20 some odd minutes. So we got a lot of this lender stuff to go through. We'll go, we'll get through it all. Just go quickly. You know, it's interesting. So here are the high level points of this lender survey, and it's going to dovetail back into M&A, right? Whether you're financing your business, refinancing your business because interest rates are low, you're trying to lock in a longer term, or whether you're under a development obligation and now there's been a hiatus at the franchisor level. And now you're, you know, they're reinstituting this process of developing new stores or remodeling, whether you're doing M&A activities and you're trying to buy or you're trying to sell, you want to know what the lending market's like, right? And so we, um, the high level survey here is going to tell us that lead, that the lending market is rebounded really pretty strong. You're going to see some pretty, not startling, but pretty significant trends that are going to mirror the comments that we're making. Uh, and lenders are more typically more conservative than we are, right? So when they're positive, it means we're really positive since we're kind of usually the tip of the spear. You know, underwriting the run rate EBITDA is a challenge for some brands. So you're, we're hearing that at the at the risk department level, we're definitely seeing the flight to quality and a flight to legacy brands with 3,000 or 4,000 units or more. And rates and terms, of course, are very, very favorable. Rates are at incredible lows, like 90-day LIBOR is like 0.15% or something crazy like that. So we're seeing 2% loans. And then there's really no fluid casual dining marketplace right now from a lending perspective. And again, my hope is that that's going to change as we probably the QSR deals get pulled forward and we roll into the fall and maybe early 2022 when you have maybe a stronger, more robust P&L. But uh, let's go through this first one. First one's just pretty easy. If you just look over to the left, I don't know how your screen looks, but we, we uh, had 15 or so surveys, lender surveys back in, in uh, respondents in June of 2020. And then we have today, May 2021st. 
or 2021, pardon me. And so that's how every one of these slides is going to be set up here. So you'll see a question at the, at the top. And then you'll see the answers at the bottom and the answers to the left are going to be last year in the middle of the pandemic. Remember where you were in June 1st of 2020, right? This is like two and a half months after the pandemic started. And then here we are today. And you can see, you know, this first is how many M&A deals are you personally trying to fund right now? And you can see that there is there, you know, it doesn't look all that dissimilar, which is surprising to me, but you do see a, a small cadre of deals you know, if the lenders saying that they're they're looking at 11 or more deals, a lot of them are still in the one to five, you know, less or, or not looking at any. Um, and so that's just a, kind of a, to get, get you started in terms of uh, the changes. Let's, let's go to the next slide real quick and I'll have you guys comment on this, but, you know, digest this for a minute. How is your bank looking at new franchise M&A loans going forward? And this is probably the most important slide, maybe, or one of the most important slides from the survey. Look at back in 2020 in June, you had the yellow box was saying cautiously lending for the right circumstance. And that was probably 70%, 65% of the respondents, right? Now you look over in May and then, and then right in the early, in the light blue over here, it says open and looking to take market share. And that was maybe, I don't know, it looks like a slice of pecan pie. That's about 8%, right? Or 8, 7% or something back then. So that, you know, but now look at what's happening here. Looking to take market share among the lenders, you have, I mean, you tell me guys, 60, 65% are responding that that's what they're trying to do. So that's a majority of the lenders are looking to take market share now. And the rest of them are cautiously lending for the right circumstance. And nobody is saying unlikely to lend or not lending. Quite interesting, quite a change. What do you think? I think if you took that 65 and you were to sit down with them and talk to them, I think they would say, we're looking at anything and anything because we want to be there to see where the dust settles. But I think a lot of them will say, gee, golly whiz, over some drinks and say, I'm not sure about this lapping issue, right? It's going to probably give their underwriting team a lot of heartburn if a brand was up, let's say, consistently 30 40%. I don't know, in the most outlandish cases, right? A few of the brands that we operate in where it's just incredibly high. I think they'll have some pause there, but I do think a lot of them are bullish, especially the ones that don't have as much exposure in casual dining who've done really well with their portfolios through QSR. Uh, so that, that jives with what I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at the timing, it makes perfect sense. Back in June of, of last year, that's when banks were kind of finally starting to somewhat reopen really late June, July. So now you've got restaurants doing great. Um, if you're a lender, you you definitely want to lend. Um, obviously, you have to to make sure you're lending on the right numbers. But um, if you just even if you just think of the timing of when these polls were done, it makes perfect sense that last June people were pretty cautious. I don't think it was just lenders that were cautious last June; it was everybody. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, maybe for us it's a like a duh no brainer to see these numbers. But I think for some people who might be watching. It may uh, or listening. It may be you know they, they may be surprised at how 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 quickly the it, it has shifted so so forcefully. Um, so that's that's good. You know it's really good. I how soon the next slide says how soon will franchise lending get back to pre COVID nineteen levels? What do you make of this slide? Back in June of twenty twenty, people said twelve to twenty four months. Here we are twelve months later, and most people a majority a half people are saying somewhere between three and twelve months, and and the rest are saying twelve to twenty four months. So. It's kind it makes, of would be what you'd expect, maybe. It makes sense. Like, I almost wish we would have phrased it differently and put like, you know, first first half of 21, second half of 21, yeah. 22. Yeah. Um, but if you know, I mean, it, it just goes down in months. So it makes sense to me, you know, after 11 months here that 
that the 12 to 24 has dropped down to, to three to six. Um, some of the six to 12 has dropped down to three to six. So it, it makes sense if you, if you think about the timing there. Tony, you take the next one. What do you think? Post-COVID, who will you be most likely to make loans to? So um, basically, this looks almost a mirror image exactly. <laughs> last time. There's yeah, something to be said about There's a story here. I don't know if you have any thoughts on the story, but there's a story here. But go ahead. Yeah, I, I think what this tells you is kind of the bellywick of of these brands, their, their sweet spot is to find that franchisee, again, 10 to 50 unit operator, probably in the top whatever 20 brand, but they're also open to looking at anything else. And I think that's what you see here. And that hasn't changed at all, um, which, you know, in some ways isn't really surprising. I think if you ask any lender candidly, what are you gonna be looking at and making loans against? I think this is about where we would, where we would have landed. If you asked me what this slide would have looked like, I would have, I would have guessed that it would be about the same. Yeah, you know, to me, it's a little surprising, I guess. I mean, not not overly surprising, but, you know, in the middle of the pandemic to after the pandemic, you have the, the answer has not changed at all. I think you're right to have 40% of the respondents preferring lenders, preferring the 10 to 50 unit operator. Um, that speaks a lot into, into how people are looking at the type of at the type of operator who um, who knows their markets, knows their RGMs, knows the ball teams in their in their small towns, knows the band, you know, can cater to the local school, those are still probably uh, not not by any means everybody that they want to finance. But but it uh, but it you know it does garner a lot of attention. And you know you don't see anyone individually saying the one to ten unit operator they didn't last year. That's becoming a harder and harder thing to do. And if you're a one to 10 unit operator, you understand this, that unless you're a, have a lot of real estate and incredible AUVs and own nine stores, it's really hard to find, you know, a, a national restaurant lender that wants to, that wants to finance your deal. It, it really is. And so you're usually looking at regional lenders or you're looking maybe at SBA lenders or something that's local to you. And that has a, some reason uh, behind why you, you've seen so much consolidation in this industry since I started and left Yum in 05. I mean, it's just like been consistently this, this kind of abandonment of the one to 10 unit operator in favor of either the 10 to 50 unit operator or the family office private equity buyer, which has kind of been more of the last five or six years. Um, so yeah, interesting. Okay, what about this? What segment of franchise lending will, will your bank most favor going forward? If there's maybe a little contingency of people last year who said, hey, I want the highly leveraged QSR brand, like a Taco Bell type brand that, you know, the, the, the respondent was probably like, that's the most secure brand. Maybe I'm just guessing. Um, whereas now, uh, you know, maybe it's more shifted just towards a split between the mid, mid leverage legacy QSR brands and then the ones that have resurged. Anything here that, uh, that strikes you guys that'd be worth noteworthy of talking about? It just continues to show people are looking for for stable, strong QSR brands, um, you know, where they don't have to go to 575 or six lease adjusted, you know, go to go to maybe five to five and a half lease adjusted, have a brand that, you know, pre-COVID was doing great. Um, maybe they're up now, but, you know, worst case scenario, the the uh, the, the franchisees not going to miss debt payments. Maybe they're not making quite as much money as they otherwise would have liked. And but um you know, still have the, the strong capability of making those debt payments. So uh, 
I don't see anything too too shocking here personally. I think it makes sense that that one lender, whoever it was, <laughs> went back down to to mid leverage from from high leverage, um, just based on all the other conversations we're having with lenders right now. Yeah, I think it's good news. Isn't it good news, Tony? What would you say? I mean, yeah, you came from Pizza Hut. What's it's good news it's for the resurgent brands, isn't it? It's good news yeah. for like the. Remember back in June of 2020, we'd already seen like pizza and chicken going bonkers, right? So, um, and a lot of people would say that pizza, a lot of the pizza companies were saved by PPP and by the surge in, in, in drive-through and takeout business. Um, so, so, I mean, those deals weren't easy, weren't all that easy. To, if you're a pizza franchisee, it wasn't all that easy to get financed back in 18 and 19, was it? And, um, and now... Now it is a lot easier. What do you What do you think? What were you going to say? Yeah, I was just going to say uh, the last thing probably before we change slides is that it's good to see that the lenders' risk profile and appetite is still the same, more or less, yeah. outside the one person in 20, 2020 that want higher leverage. It's business as usual, similar risk tolerances as before. Yeah, if I would have if I would have had this graph back in nineteen June of nineteen, I bet it would have been like eighty percent or ninety percent on blue. And like 10% on yellow. So the 2020 results already have the baked in impact of a resurgence in some of these chicken and pizza brands that really took the brunt of the increases in sales and profits. Um, so, so it's, you know, kind of looking year to year doesn't tell you maybe the story that we all know that those deals were harder to finance in 19 and they're, they're a lot easier now. So if you're an operator of those types of brands that have had a big resurgence, especially if you're a legacy QSR brand with over 3,000, 4,000 units, I think the, 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 the message is particularly strong for you. You've got more outlets to finance your business than you did before, you know, before the pandemic started. Okay, post-COVID-19, how, how likely will it be for your bank to lend to a casual dining brand? One piece of info that I'd like to see is what, what, which of these lenders wouldn't have done it pre-COVID as well? You know, that, that, but obviously we, we can't ask them every single question in the book, but not a lot of change, as you can see, since, since June of 2020, um, you know, you've got more unlikely almost nevers that kind of took over some of the somewhat unlikely category, but then the green and blue is, is pretty much the same. A little um, bit less. You'd say a marginal, if slight, but not much change, but a marginal probably less positive view on casual dining now than then maybe why 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 doesn't that, doesn't that surprise you aren't i mean isn't it doing better casual dining is doing great now a lot of people are back at 100 percent capacity sales are doing great but yet i think i think in may though with the data here you're probably not out of the woods 100 you can't tell if it's a growing trend i think if you ran this again in november october if if these brands continue to produce the comps that i'm hearing from our previous and current clients, I think that could change a little bit. I think you're going to have certain banks that say, heck no, we're not going to touch casual dining ever again, just because of what we've just been through. But I think the ones who have them in their stable, who've already have that equity with those clients, they start comping 15, 10, 20%. And consistently, I think the tune will change quite drastically if you re-ran this question. Yeah, but how are you going to get through all those casual dining brands and all the deferred rent and everything that they had to that write off through the pandemic? I mean, I don't know that those guys in many cases are, 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 you know, might not be fighting for another seven or eight years just to be able to get back to where they were in 2019 from a, you know, net worth perspective. I, you know, I mean, hopefully 
everyone's taking write downs and, you know, and all those things that happen, but they had such a pronounced period of difficulty that it's difficult to see a lender looking at a deal that has a $3 million of deferred rent and wanting right. to lend money to it. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think the guys and gals who will do best through this are the ones who are diversified, had the QSR business kind of overcompensating for the casual business. We have a few of those clients that are really well diversified. I think they'll, they'll benefit the most with what I was discussing. But I, I think if you, if you hung your hat on one or two brands, just in casual dining, I think you're right. That pain is deep and it's going to be a while before you uh, get anywhere close to recovery, like true recovery. Go if you're a lender right now, you're seeing the QSR deals. You want to spend your time on that. The QSR slows down in 22 and then casual dining sales are back up to hundred percent. There's more M&A in casual yeah. and not as much in QSR. Well, I bet you'll, you'll see some of these lenders go back to casual if that's the only option. And, and, you know, this is just, this is my opinion, but you know, a lot of the buddies that I keep in this business are QSR people who have a second fast casual brand where they own 10 of those units and hundred units of QSR and 10 units of fast casual. And those fast casual are just being hidden in their QSR portfolio. And so they're not going to ever sell those things in my opinion, for much of a gain. So they, they may not be affected by capital gains tax increases. And that's another sector, sector of the market that you may see as it comes back, a really resurgence in people trying to sell fast casual companies. And if you're listening and you want to own a seven or eight or nine or 10 unit fast casual business, you know, just a smaller one, which a lot of these big franchisees got into a second brand in a small way. I mean, those deals are probably coming in 2022. They're not coming now, probably, because but they're probably coming in 2022. Um, might be an interesting regression back to a smaller operator in those fast casual brands. Um, okay, we're running out of time here. So I, 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 I you know, let's see, we got like what, seven minutes. So um, this is interesting. What part of the loan process getting the biggest increase in scrutiny? It was interest rate was with kind of an equal split back in 2020. Now, no one's saying there's a lot of scrutiny on interest rate. So interest rates have been diving and they're at all time lows. And they're not uh, as big of an issue when making a loan now. And so what that means to me and what we see practically in the marketplace is that the, the, the banking market is, uh, is, is competing pretty heavily on interest rate. And that's an area that if you're an existing borrower or doing M&A, you probably know that, uh, you know, you can improve your circumstance, uh, you know, or expect really attractive terms in that way. But you are seeing amortization in term getting the corresponding increase in uh, you know, in, in, in scrutiny at the banking level, which makes sense. That to me says, you know, we're, we're still employing what the next slide will say, which is a really heavy look at some of the financial metrics like lease adjusted leverage, fixed charge coverage ratios and straight leverage. I don't know that this sample survey really tells me anything other than, you know, I thought back in June of 2020, they, you know, only about a an eighth of course of respondents were saying lease adjusted leverage was a primary method of making a loan. And you know, now that number looks like it's doubled. Maybe it's just the sampling size and such, but that's really the, I know that lenders look at fixed charge coverage, straight leverage and lease adjusted leverage, but the lease adjusted leverage calculation is, is really, we think the one that, that you hear the most about from the, from the lending community. And, and the one that we really kind of, we'll, we'll kind of since check our valuations to our clients who come to us and say, well, what's this worth? And we'll say it's worth $50 million. And then they'll say, why? And we'll say, well, this is because of the EBITDA multiple and the way we model it, but also look at what someone who's going to be a buyer is going to have to put down in a down payment based on the lease adjusted leverage of 5.75 
and how much debt that they can assume on the business and borrow on the business. So um, any comments there real quickly before we move on? No, just answer one quick question. The sample size was 15 and 17 lenders. Yeah, 17 back in 2020 and 15 today. So, okay, this is one, you know, least adjusted leverage, which is a calculation, again, we just talked about that we use a lot. You can see the general tone of this says that back in June of 2020, everyone was like, oh, crap, we're going to be ranch ratcheting down the amount of money that we're going to be providing uh, our restaurant franchise clients because there's more risk. And so you can just kind of see that in these results. And then now you can see that, that, that it's, it's less so, it's more muted. Most people are saying, you know, yeah, we may overall that blended average here is that, you know, looking in the future, we may, you know, least adjusted leverage might get a little bit lower. And maybe that's because of some of the big increases in sales and profits, but it's nothing like what it was in June of 2020, where people were frankly expecting to loan maybe 10 to 15% less in total proceeds than, than, than what they are now, right? If you just look at kind of the, the layout of these numbers. So that's a good thing. That means that people are willing to, lenders are willing to lend more money on better terms at higher levels and, and hopefully on a responsible basis. Okay. And then we have, uh, you know, this is, this would be, I think the last side. Uh, there's not much to glean here about interest rates settling in the next one to six months. You know, you, you, you really have um, basically people have shifted a little bit. Lenders have shifted, but what's, what's they, you know, if I'm looking at this slide, I would say most lenders are looking like it's going to be flat to marginally higher, but more of a muted interest rate environment for the next six months. And I think that's pretty much what, what, what we'd all expect right now. Um, whereas back in June, there was a lot of fear. Everybody expected massive interest rate increases. Um, and, you know, looking back, the opposite happened. Um, so yeah, that's a point. A little more bullish now that, that you're going to see flat to very marginally higher increases. One, one or two have said lower, actually, which, you know, going lower from today is a pretty bullish statement. Yeah, it uh, is. But everybody back in June was pretty much saying, I mean, half of the half of the people were saying 50 plus basis yeah. point increases. Um, and that, that obviously did not happen in hindsight. Um, so lenders definitely more bullish now. Just overall sentiment, lenders are more bullish than they were 11 months ago. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's good for our business. OK, we got just a couple minutes. Cap rates are mostly unchanged. Still at incredibly uh, awesome levels. There's a lot of pressure going on to get these deals done in 